There is a way, and that way is forward together. This is the John Peacock Podcast. Welcome to Season 2. Hey, welcome to the show. My name is John and it is great to see you guys. Today is more Monday and uh, on Mondays, I like to talk a little bit more about whatever we're preaching on on the weekends. And we are in the book of Philippians right now and joining me uh, on the show is Dr. Sanjay Merchant again. What's up, brother? How are we doing? I'm good. How are you, John? Doing well. Doing well. It is, uh, I love October. I do. October is a good month. It's uh, it's hoodie weather. I like wearing hoodies. You know, right. it's it's nice. It's nice. Not as bad as it's gonna get yet. It's just a taste. It's just a taste, but it's right. it's coming. It's coming. It's been it's been pretty cold in the mornings. Yeah. Uh, does your wife bake any amazing like fall goodies of any kind? She always does. Um, so you never know what's coming. Sometimes, <laughs> usually she'll break out something new every year. But she does some old favorites as well. And uh, yeah, unfortunately, they're always around. So <laughs> she's, she's so gifted at that. Yeah, she was raised by bakers. So there you go. She used, to, she used to bake just for fun in their bakery and just come up with new things. And so, uh, yeah, she's but she's got a natural talent as well. So, well, we, we might need to rebrand Mondays as Muffin Monday and have her, <laughs> <laughs> have her bake some stuff for us. For sure. But hey, thanks again for joining us on the show. And it's been so it's been so helpful the past couple of weeks to just hear you uh, talk a little bit more about this book of Philippians that I know you and I both love. And today we're going to, we're going to be in chapter two uh, this weekend. I, I focused really on humility, this incredible virtue of humility um, that in some ways can seem like it's in short supply these days, but yet when any of us are around someone that walks in humility, it's so attractive you know, you're just like, oh my goodness, like that is so attractive. It doesn't minimize their strength or power. And in fact, it maximizes it. You know, you're just like, ah, oh, I want that. I want to be more like that. And certainly the greatest example of all time is, is that of Jesus Christ. And we're in chapter two today. And uh, as you and I were just talking about what many theologians call the Christ hymn, uh, I want to read that. And then I, I'd love for us to chat a little bit about it. Is that cool? Yeah. Awesome. So Philippians 2 uh, begins in verse 6, the Christ hymn, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the father. Ooh, that's amazing. Yeah. So in that, in that verse, you know, he prefaces it just what you talked about on Sunday. Uh, he, he prefaces it with, encouraging the Philippians to develop humility. And he says, 
if, if you want to know what humility ultimately looks like, here's the ultimate example. And then the example he gives, again, is this Christ hymn, which is either something that Paul pens here. It's, it's poetic. It's definitely New Testament scholars uh, can discern in the Greek that it is poetic in nature. I don't know that it has a rhyme scheme in the Greek, uh, but it is considered a hymn. And he either invented it here in Philippians 2 or perhaps more likely he's actually citing something that the Philippians already know, a sort of poem or a hymn hmm. that, um, they would commonly recite. Uh, maybe it would be something that would be said at a baptismal or perhaps at a, at a, at a funeral or something like that uh, among Christians. Yeah. So in that, what he's really doing is he's saying, here's an example of humility and this incredible hymn, uh, the reason I personally think, although I'm not a New Testament scholar, so um, I don't have expertise on this, but I personally lean towards thinking that he's citing something um, that the Philippians and other Christians know well is because it is a uh, sort of almost creedal, confessional encapsulation of the whole gospel story. It's amazing. It covers the whole gospel story and actually outlines the whole logic of the gospel. So here's how I think of the Christ hymn. And you can sort of follow it verse by verse. Uh, imagine a, uh, a circle, right? A circle. The very top of the circle starts at God's throne in heaven. And the very bottom of the circle is Jesus's tomb. Okay, so a circle going this way down from God's throne down to Jesus's tomb, and then from Jesus's tomb back up to God's throne. So he says, uh, in, the, in the first verse, he says, you know, Jesus Christ is in the very form of God, in the very form of God, but did not consider it something to be grasped. So he has divinity. Such an odd idea. John's gospel opens with this idea. He says, in the beginning, sounds just like Genesis 1. He's recapitulating Genesis 1. And your ears, if you know Genesis 1, are attuned to hearing, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So the next word that you imagine that you'll hear is, after John says, in the beginning, imagine that you're going to hear God. He doesn't do that. He says, in the beginning was the word. Mm -hmm. And the word was with God, and the word was God. And then he goes on in John 1.14 to tell us the word took on flesh and dwelt among us. So this word, this uh, term that he's using is actually a reference to the pre-incarnate Jesus. So Jesus, who we call the, the begotten son of God, the only begotten son of God, uh, is with God and is God. So um, just very briefly, the metaphor that you see from John, you also see this in Hebrews 1, you see this in various places in Paul, um, and Jesus himself calling himself the only begotten son of the Father. The metaphor is uh, just exactly what we know in father-son relationships. So you know my son, Nathaniel. Mm -hmm. um, he's, uh, he's 18 now. He's about my height. Um, and we have roughly the same build, although you know he's got that, that teenager build. Uh, and you might say that he's the spinning image of his father in some ways. I had an old friend, you know, maybe not really, but I had an old friend uh, that hasn't seen me since high school. And she saw a Facebook picture of my son, Nathaniel, and she said, he's the spinning image of his father. That's exactly how I remember you. Now, she hasn't seen me since high school, so it's been a long time. So her mental picture of me looked exactly like my son, Nathaniel. So he's the spinning image. Well, what do we mean by that? He received his genetics from me. He received even certain psychological qualities from me and of course from his mom. And so he's a mix of us. Jesus Christ is not a mix of God with any other being. 
but he is the only begotten son of the father. He comes from the bosom of the father, so he receives the father's genetics. So he is divine. In John 5, they said to Jesus, you keep calling God your father in this unique way. You're not saying he's our father, like we're all sons of God by adoption or something like that. You're saying you are the only begotten son of God. You're making yourself out to be divine. You're making yourself out to be God. So the son who is my spitting image, it goes without saying he's human because humans produce humans. So when the apostles say he's the exact representation of the father, the exact, not just the spitting image, but precise. In fact, Jesus says, when you've seen me, you've seen the father. There's nothing left. I've received all of his genetics. Divinity is fully in, um, yeah, within me. Paul says that the fullness of deity dwells in him in bodily form. So when the divine father contributes his genetics to his divine son, his son receives all of it because God is not physical. He doesn't break off, you know, material parts like the father contributes the sperm and the mother contributes the egg and they come together and you have the embryo. Now you have a third biological, physical human. God is impartable. He's impartable. So he contributes his full genetics to his son. So Jesus is fully divine, which is what the uh, Christ hymn is saying. He was in the form of God. He has, he's not the same as the father. When he prays to the father, he's not talking to himself. The father is another, but yet they share the same being, which is um, a stunning, shocking uh, claim of the New Testament. And that's where the Christ hymn starts. So that's, that's, in Sanjay, yeah. this is so good. That is important when it comes to understanding other world religions and what they might be saying. So maybe just for a second, talk to us a little bit about apologetics from the standpoint of, you know, whether it's um, Church of Latter-day Saints or mm -hmm. whether it's Jehovah's Witness that I think many are familiar with uh, in our context, what you just said, how does that part ways with what, with what they're saying? Yeah, it's, it's vitally important. Um, this claim that Jesus Christ is fully divine and yet distinct from his divine father has been consistently misunderstood. In the ancient world, many people thought that the claim was that Jesus Christ was a Titan. Remember the Greek Titans were half God, half human. So you would have Zeus, having sexual relations with some human woman, and then Hercules would be born. Half. So they, these were ancient superheroes. They were humans, but uh, they were above and beyond. They were humans plus. They had this divine quality to them. They had these extra uh, supernatural attributes. And so they were the ancient world's superheroes. So Jesus was seen as just another superhero in that pantheon of superheroes by some people. And that's not what the Christians were saying. They're saying it's, it's much different than that. Um, he is fully human. He's not... Um, uh, God pretending to be human, taking on the guise of a human, uh, as you might see in, um, in the Hindu avatars or something like that. He is fully human. He is truly Mary's son, but he's also mysteriously fully God. And that breaks all of uh, our sort of mundane notions. And so um, it, it, for anyone who wants to, uh, frankly, found a new gospel, on their own authority. We have so-called cults of Christianity. And in the New Testament, the apostles warn us about these groups, these groups that perpetuate false gospels. And what they wanna do is they wanna sort of hijack the authority of the gospel for their own purposes. Sometimes we might think it's just for wealth, uh, but not usually. It's usually for the notoriety of being able to wait um, to uh, wield spiritual or religious authority. And so you do have groups like you mentioned um, the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Latter-day Saints, or Mormons. Uh, both of these groups give very different pictures of who Jesus Christ is. And 
what they do is they, they make it more comprehensible, frankly. I mean, this mystery of the Trinity um, is very difficult to comprehend. And wouldn't it be religiously easier to just present something that's more comprehensible? So, mm -hmm. for example, the Jehovah's Witnesses say, the Father, who they call Jehovah, is not triune. He's a singular divine being, and he created Jesus Christ out of nothing, just like he created the universe out of nothing. So Jesus is merely a creature. He doesn't share in his father's divinity. And so when Jesus comes to us, he's merely like a messenger, a very high angel with a message. But how is he really our savior? If God is really our savior, he's only showing us what to do to please the father. So really you're in the business of saving yourself and good luck with that, right? Uh, that's the unfortunate thing about that gospel. Um, with the Mormons, what they did was they took it in another direction, which is a little bit more comprehensible. They said, oh, sure, the Father's God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God, uh, but you know what? They're three separate gods. And so, hey, we're Christians, and let's believe in multiple gods. Then. And there's a council of the gods, and that's a wholly different religion. Uh, the apostles and the early church would have been completely floored by that. How do you say you're a Christian and you're a polytheist at the same time? So those are wrong ways of going. Yeah, and so this crisis it starts, like you're saying, it starts at the top and... And it's so vitally important for Christians to really grasp the deep logic and the deep, profound truth of Christ's full divinity. Because then what we see is, in the next couple of verses, he talks about taking on the form of a servant. And there you have this idea called the incarnation, right? Which we celebrate at Christmas. with Jesus Christ coming into the womb of Mary. And so his humility is seen in his incarnation. Um, that God Almighty takes on the form of a servant. He comes in the likeness in our sort of likeness, and has a full human experience. None of us can ever point our finger in God's face and say, you don't know what it's like. Yes, True, yes. I'm a sinner, right? True, you're holy and divine, but you don't know what it's like. None of us can say that to God because of the humility of the incarnation. And so you have this downward swoop of God coming down to us. And then you have him on the cross and what we call the atonement, which we celebrate at Easter. Uh, you have Jesus Christ, on the cross, the bottom of this circle, the full humility of God represented to us. Um, he actually empties himself mm. of, I, I shouldn't say it that way, I shouldn't say, what, what he does is he rather uh, opens himself to receive on himself our sin. And so he cries out on the cross, my, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He experiences the full pain and weight of human sin and evil on himself. He takes it on himself. And in that moment also gives us his holiness and righteousness. There's an exchange that happens. And so the apostles will tell us that when we're in Christ, it's not our righteousness that we operate in. It's his. So that when we do good things, when we do laudable things, when we do praiseworthy things, it's actually the spirit working in us. It's actually God's holiness, frankly, Jesus's holiness given to us. And he gives us, you know, sometimes we say beauty for ashes or, you know, he gives us his riches for our yes, rags. Yes. And that is the full, deep humility of Jesus Christ. And then because of that humility, what happens? The father then exalts him and you see this upward swoop happening. And now the New Testament says we are in Christ. We are in Christ. And so in this upward swoop through the ascension uh, of Jesus Christ, where does he ascend? He returns to his rightful place to the throne room of God where he belongs. That's his native home. My daughter, Serena, she's away at college in California. This place where I'm at right now, this is her home. She can, if she can 
wants to get on a plane and surprise us, she can walk in the front door any moment she wants. She doesn't have to knock. She doesn't have to ask permission. She's not a guest. This is her native home. Jesus Christ walks right back into the throne room of God, and we are in him. And so that's how we get into God's presence. You can't get into God's presence by your own means. It's as if you're made of wax, and God is burning with holiness like the sun. And you want to walk into his throne room. You can't survive that. But you can enter into full fellowship and reconciliation with God in Jesus Christ. And it's this swooping humility and then ascension back up to God, which encapsulates the whole gospel. It's an amazing hymn. God, <laughs> so good. I love the verse 13, you know, just after the Christ hymn for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. And man, this has been so fun to talk about the Christ hymn. I've never heard it explained that way. I love that. Anything else in chapter two that you feel like we need to need to talk about today before we, uh, before we end. You know, well, so- I just like so much what you just said about verse 13, um, and, and this is what I was just saying a, a minute ago, but it's, you know, it's definitely worthy of just thinking about quite a bit, is that when we do anything, um, again, praiseworthy or laudable, um, when we even see others, like you were saying, people who have deep humility and we have so much respect for them, what we're seeing is we're seeing Christ in them, and what we honor is Christ in them. And these people who strike us as so humble, if we go up to them and say, you're so humble, how do I get humble? Sometimes they're even surprised. They're saying, why, why are you saying I'm humble? They don't even see it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but the spirit is clearly working in them. And so we get to move along with God's work, what he's doing in and with us, which is very freeing because um, the world doesn't sit on our shoulders. Um, no one else's holiness or salvation or anything like that uh, rests on our works, but we get to participate in the work that, that God is doing in and through the Holy Spirit. Um, so it's very freeing. And, um, you know, I rarely have moments, um, <laughs> which, I, which I would um, in my own life consider to be humility. But whenever the Lord does something in my life and, and anyone else is grateful for it, uh, it's just so freeing to know I don't have to receive anyone's thanks. I know that I didn't do it. I don't have to bear the burden of that. I don't have to sort of keep a reputation or something like that. I know who I am. I know who I really, really am. And I know who he really, really is. And my only hope is to be in him. Um, And so if I represent him in any way, fantastic. Um, But it's him who's being represented. And if I'm being transformed, uh, then that's, that's the whole plan but there's really nothing natively laudable in me. And that's very freeing actually. Yes. I mean, I mean, what we're talking about here is when we really understand Philippians chapter two, it, it really combats both pride and pressure. You know, the, the pride that, you know, he writes about earlier uh, verse three, I believe uh, he calls it vain conceit. (laughs) So even, even on our best day, right. Where there's fruit, you know, in and through our life, when we understand what this is saying, we know that it wasn't us. Then that was God at work in us, right? And right. That's what verse 13 is saying. So there's just, there's zero room for pride. The flip side of that is, you know, there can be times where, you know, certainly the, the fruit of God's spirit is in and through our life. And then we might feel the pressure that, oh my gosh, we got to keep, we got to keep this going. 
<laughs> you know, and, you know, and he started in, in verse one or uh, chapter one, rather that, Hey, uh, you didn't begin this good work just so we know, right? <laughs> it was, it was God, God started it and he's going to see it through to, you know, to the day, to completion till the day of Christ Jesus. And so for me, it's so helpful to talk even more about the power of the gospel, understanding that man, when we really understand that we are in Christ, like you said, wax in the presence of the sun, it's like, oh my goodness, on my best day, uh, there's no room for pride. And on my best day, there's also no room for pressure because, you know, verse 13, it, it's God. It, it's, it, it's all him. That's it's right. all him. How, how do you, how should we um, receive compliments or give compliments in the body of Christ? Yeah, John, I know that you feel that pressure a lot. People will put that pressure on you. And I know that you would never say it, uh, uh, but that's because you are a humble and, uh, and, and in my estimation, a very good pastor. You're very good at what you do. You would never say that. I know that you don't think about uh, yourself in those ways, but, um, but we do tend to do that. We tend to take leaders and put them on a pedestal. My students do this with me. And, uh, you know, this doesn't happen to me in my mundane life in the suburbs because I'm just a regular guy mowing his lawn. Nobody knows this. But when I go to Moody Bible Institute, now I'm the professor and I'm the authority. Um, and so, yeah, how do you how do you deal with it? Uh, how do you deflect it? You know, you know what I, I often do and I have the opportunity to do this with my students. I tell them very frank and um, sometimes, um, I don't know, perhaps a little bit too overt truths about my life and about my own failures um, and it, they're testimonies of what God has done and, and I have a number of failures, um, history of sin, um, embarrassing um, schemes for self uh, glorification that have all come to nothing and the Lord has, um, has used humiliation as a tool in my life um, because he loves me and has allowed me to feel the bitter taste, uh, or to, to taste the bitterness of humiliation and, um, and, and, to find, and to place my trust in him and to place my hope in him and really have no other, uh, no other scheme or plan. And so I'm just honest about that with students. Sometimes that's very hard to do in churches. It's just very hard when we're creating a spiritual moment and we're focusing on Christ. And I think it's a little bit easier for me in my classroom. And, um, and then students, um, I feel as if their praise and thanks are directed at God. Sometimes it makes it even worse. They're, then they're like, oh, professor, you're so humble. We've never heard a professor talk about their lives so honestly. I didn't realize the professor screwed up and sinned like that and had stupid schemes. And um, <laughs> I thought it was just us. I thought you guys had your lives together. And the truth is, no, uh, no, I'm also in Christ um, awaiting um, my full union uh, with him in heaven. Uh, but no, I have not perfected myself. And so if you think that I'm great or something like that, I know better. You're never going to convince me. You can believe it all you want, but don't tell me that. Oh, man, this has been so fun to talk about this. And it's so helpful because there, there's so much more I'd like to talk about uh, on the weekends and just kind of run out of time. But I just think it's, I think it's really helpful to spend the extra amount of time understanding the, the Christ hymn even more today. Thank you for explaining that. And also preparing us, you know, like so much of why I put the work in and have friends on the show like yourself is I have a huge desire to equip our people. And I think it's so helpful even for me as we start this week of, 
there is no room when I really understand that I'm in Christ, there's no room for pride and there's no room for pressure. And how freeing is that? It's yeah. just so freeing, man. And, um, and so this has been a gift today. I hope this has been helpful for everyone watching. If you would, sharing is caring. We want to get the word out. We want to share helpful content, unifying content. It's kind of hard to find these days, but you can certainly find it here. Uh, until next time, thank you guys so much for tuning in to Live at 8. We'll see you soon. Thanks so much for listening to this episode. For more content or to access the show notes, visit johnpeacock.com. Until next time, keep your eyes open, hold tight to your convictions, give it all you've got, be resolute, and love without stopping.